0: Hey guys, as you're settling down, sitting down at your tables there, uh, pull out, if you would, for me, pull out your cell phone. Don't worry, this is not a go ahead and flip it silent and then put it back in so you don't rudely interrupt anybody else. No, just pull out your phone for me. Now, take a look at this. Take a look at your phone, and uh, I just want you to think about your phone. Like, what thoughts come to mind when you see your phone right now? For some of you, maybe holding a brand new phone, a phone that like you just got during the quarantine. And it's an iPhone 11 plus Z 97 X Y, or it's the Android, whatever they make. Right. And you're like, this is the coolest thing. And this is, it it does all this. And it has this camera and it has this feature and it has, look at the apps that I've got. But for the rest of you, if, if you're like me, you pull out your phone and and if I took off my case, you'd see that the back glass on my iPhone, which is supposed to be like gorilla glass or like super strong monkey glass, like it's shattered. Um, And it broke inside my case. I dropped the case and it it cracked inside the case. And so I look at my phone, I'm like, man, this is useful, but like the, the newness is worn off, right? Like when we get something that's brand new, like you get a new phone, you get a new car, you get a new TV, you get a new piece of jewelry, you get, whatever, it's it's got the sheen to it that amazes you for a while. In fact, so much so that you wanna go and you wanna tell other people about it. You find out ways that you can pull out your new phone and be like, oh, look at that, it's the new iPhone, and you drop it on the table. Oh, sorry, guys, I didn't mean to drop that there, right? Or you're telling people about this new thing that you got and how amazing it is, and you want other people to be impressed because you want them to also be amazed by the thing that you have. But after some time passes, Maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, certainly a year. Whatever that thing was that you had that was so brand new that you just thought was like the the coolest thing is now no longer the coolest thing. And what we want as human beings is we want the next thing that's amazing, the next thing that's awesome, the next thing that we're going to be able to be amazed by and amaze other people with. And so we go out and we find the next gadget and the next piece of jewelry and the next TV or if we can't afford those then we watch shows about people who can't afford them we just as, as human beings we love to be amazed don't we i mean take espn right that that network built its empire on the top 10 in sports center it built its its empire on watching people do amazing things and people watch day in and day out i remember growing up when i was homesick from school i would watch the same episode of espn SportsCenter center like 17 times in a row, and I never got tired of it, even though I knew what was going to happen. I knew he was going to make the shot. I knew he was going to make the dunk. I knew the home run was going to leave the park. It still amazed me, right? We love to be amazed. I'll never forget, I had a pastor at one point in time. His name is Rick Holland, and he came to speak at a, a summer camp, and he said this to us there. He said, look, he said, your goal in life, and this is what I've just been talking about, your goal in life is to be amazed, And that's true pretty much universally across the board of humankind, especially here in the United States. Our goal is so often in life, I want to be amazed. And Rick said this after that. He said, and Jesus is amazing. Your goal in life is to be amazed, and Jesus is amazing. See, that's where I want us to to zoom in and focus and land, not only tonight, but for the next three weeks before Move Up weekend, and then we're going to start a series in Galatians, which Galatians is going to be all about Christ, right? And these next three weeks are going to be all about Jesus as well, because here's the reality. Unlike your cell phone, there's nothing better than Jesus. Unlike the the new TV that you got, or the new car that you're driving, or the new jewelry that you have, the, the sheen on Jesus never wears off, at least it shouldn't. See, Jesus will always be amazing. You're never going to be able to get to the place with Jesus where you're like, okay, it's old news now. I've moved on past Jesus. Now let's go deeper than Jesus. See, Jesus is the deepest that we can ever go as believers in Christ, and we need to never graduate from Jesus. He is amazing. Your goal in life is to be amazed, and He is amazing. Think about Jesus, if you will, from the Bible Matthew 14, He walks on water. Have you tried that recently? Mark 6, he feeds 5,000. Mark 4, again, he's back out on the boat, on the water. There's a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples, who are seasoned fishermen, are terrified. And they wake Jesus up, and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, we're we're dying here. And Jesus stands up, and he rebukes the waves, and the sea, it says, was immediately calm. Luke 9. He takes a few of his disciples up this mountain that's now called the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Because that's what happened there. Jesus appeared before his disciples in his full glory, the radiance of his glory, and it drove his disciples to their face. And they hear this booming voice come from heaven that says, this is my son. Who's the this in that? Jesus. The father saying, Jesus is my son with whom I am well pleased. The disciples are in awe and they're like, Rabbi, let's... We're gonna set up some tents here for you and Moses and Elijah. We just wanna forget the other nine. It can be Jesus and us three and, and we'll just camp out here for a while. John 11, what happens in John 11? We just read it recently in our daily Bible reading. Jesus shows up in this town called Bethany and one of his friends was there named Lazarus and Jesus had heard when he wasn't even there yet, he had heard, hey, Lazarus is sick and then the Bible says something funny. It says that Jesus waited a few days. And Jesus shows up, and Mary and and, and Martha, they come out to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, if you had been here earlier, you could have done something, and our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. I've got it. That's my summary of what he says. And he goes, he says, where's the, the tomb? Show me the tomb. And he goes to the tomb, and they roll the stone away, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And this guy who was dead for not three days, but it was the fourth day. Now, this guy was dead longer than the Jewish tradition held that the spirit hovers over the body so that no one could deny that this man was dead. Walks out of the tomb. Luke 17. Jesus encounters 10 lepers. Right, We've got COVID-19 going on right now. Okay, Think of of lepers. They were just as contagious as somebody who has COVID-19. They were just as feared by the society. You see the reaction of of the world right now to anybody who has coronavirus will think that when it comes to lepers. And Jesus encounters 10 of them and he heals them all instantaneously. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. You know what happens there? Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed by one of his followers, with a kiss on the cheek. He's arrested. He's led off and and imprisoned overnight. He spends the night in this cave after he was beaten and mocked by Roman centurions. He spends the, the, the night in this pit and then he's dragged out, and he's brought before these two uh, world leaders at the time. He's brought before uh, Pontius Pilate, and he's brought before Caiaphas, and, and it, it, there's, there's a, a back and forth, and, and finally, he's condemned to death on the cross, and he's led away by people whose life he was sustaining because Colossians 1, which is our text, eventually says that in Christ all things hold together and that included while he was on earth. So Jesus is actively sustaining the very atoms that make up the men who are leading him to the cross and they lead him to the place called Golgotha, to the skull and they lay him out on the cross and they nail him to the cross and he's lifted up into place and he suffocates to death over three hours while bearing the full weight of God's wrath against your sins and against my sins. But then we have Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. And you know what happens there? Jesus walks out of the tomb. Jesus walks out of the tomb, not because another person was outside like with Lazarus that said, Jesus, come out. No, no. no. Jesus took up his life again because he had the authority both to lay it down and to take it back up. He took up his life again because he was sinless and he couldn't be held by sin. And so he wasn't bound by death. And so he freed himself from death and walked out of the tomb. And then you fast forward to Acts chapter one and he's with his disciples and his disciples are like, hey, now's the time. Let's bash some Roman heads, Roman heads together. Let's do this thing. Jesus set up your kingdom. And Jesus is like, it's not yet. And he says, you've got a mission to do for me. And he commissions them. Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8, he commissions them. He says, I want you to go and tell others about what you've witnessed. Tell others about me, what I've done for you. And then Jesus is caught up into the clouds where he sits now at the right hand of the Father, waiting until the time that his enemies are made a footstool for his feet when he will return, Psalm 110. See, Jesus is amazing. Even just what we read of in the the scripture, which is just scratching the surface, Jesus is amazing. So I want you to take your Bibles, I want you to open them up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I love the book of Colossians for so many different reasons. It's got so many good verses in it. But one of the things that I love about it is Paul's writing to these people who were saying, okay, we need Jesus and, we need Jesus and these, these visions of, of, of spiritual, mystical things that, that are for the super elite, uber-Christians out there. That's what you need, is you need these visions. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't need that. You need Jesus. And then you had other people going, well, you know, there's these religious days that need to be kept and these festivals that need to be kept, and you need to keep them just so. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't need that. You just need Jesus. And then there were others that said, you know what? Philosophy is the new gig in town, and so we need to be caught up in philosophy, and we need to be able to argue with the philosophers, and we need to know what their arguments are, and we need to make sure that we can contextualize. There's a word for you. Our message of Jesus would to jive with the philosophers. And Paul says, no, don't be taken captive by philosophy. You need Jesus. But he opens with this amazing statement about Jesus, Colossians 1:15 through 20. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. Paul starts out, Colossians 1.15, he says he is the image of the invisible God. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. He is the image of the invisible God. The word for image there in the Greek is the Greek word icon. Icon. We've kind of grabbed it and we've brought it over into English as well. He is the the image, the exact representation, the exact imprint of God. Photos amaze us, don't they, right? In fact, we like to look at photos in in nature. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I got to go to the Grand Canyon last year for the first time. I'd never been before. I'd seen pictures of it, right? And, And you can be amazed by a photo, but there's something different about being there in person, isn't there? You can be amazed by a photo and say, wow, that's an amazing view. Look at the colors in this photo. Look at the, the, the rocks. Look at the height. Look at how low and how deep the, the river is in this canyon. Look at this. It's, it's, a, it's amazing. This is such a, a phenomenal photograph. But then you go and you stand there, and every single picture that you've ever seen all of a sudden pales in comparison. Well, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God... He's not saying that he's like that photograph that impresses us from a distance, but when we really get to the real thing, we're disappointed with the photograph. That's not what Paul means. When he says that he is the image of the invisible God, he's, he's going deeper than that. He's saying that he is the imprint. He is the exact form, the same substance, the exact likeness of God the Father, such that when you look at Jesus, you see God. See, if you come and you show me a picture of the Grand Canyon, I'm not going to go, well, yeah, this picture is the Grand Canyon. I understand that it's just a picture of the Grand Canyon, just a representation of the Grand Canyon. But see, y'all, when we look at Jesus, what we are seeing is we are seeing God in the flesh. Same substance, fully God. My twins, right, they look similar to one another. They're classified as identical twins though if you ask my wife and I we can tell them apart pretty easily some of you can too if you know them very well but if you don't see them for a while even our our parents sometimes mix them up they don't know which one's which why because they're identical twins they look similar to one another but here's the deal with with twins did you know that the identical element runs deeper than just their appearance their physical appearance did you know my, my twins share the same exact DNA same their genetic coding is exactly identical from one to the other You see, their similarities go deeper than just the surface. When I say that John is the image of Sam, I'm not just saying that physically they look similar. That No, there's an interior substance that's the same. Well, guys, on a much grander scale, that's what we're talking about with Jesus the Son and God the Father. That the Son of God is this substance, the same form as, as Paul puts it, the invisible God. See, if Paul was just talking about the external, the exterior, then he wouldn't have said Jesus is the image of the invisible God, would he? Because that doesn't make any sense. Paul was driving deeper than that. He was saying that that what you see in Jesus is what you see in God, that they are one and the same, that there's, there's no separation there, that they are exactly the same in essence and substance. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Grab your Bibles, flip them back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is another place that we encounter this word image, and it's in the act of creation. You guys might be able to quote these verses, maybe, but if not, maybe it's been a while since you've been in Genesis. Let me remind you of what they say. God is ready to create man, right, after he has created a world for which man can live and take care of and steward. And so God says this in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our, what's that next word? Image. Image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own, where's the word? Image. Image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here you have the, the creation account where God creates Adam and Eve. And it says there that he created them in his image. There's a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint because that's the Latin for or the, the Greek for 70, and it took 70 scholars to, to translate this work, right? So there you've got the, the Septuagint. It's the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this same word that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1 icon. God created Adam and Eve in his icon. Jesus is the exact icon of the invisible God. It's the same word there. And so when we think about what it means that you and I were created in the image of God, well, number one, we would say that it doesn't mean that we physically look like God, right? Jesus took on flesh, but when it's talking about that we were created in the image of God, it doesn't mean that when God looks in the mirror, he sees something that looks like you. John chapter four, Jesus encounters this woman at the well in Samaria, right? And he goes up to her, and she's talking to him, and She says, hey, I've got a question for you. She said, you Jews worship in Jerusalem and and we Samaritans worship up, up here in Samaria, which is right. And Jesus says, well, you're missing the point because God is spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is God's not chilling in Jerusalem in the temple or in Samaria. God is spirit. He's not physically bound by anywhere is what Jesus is telling her. And then he says, and God wants worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, right? So God is spirit. So when it says that you and I are created in the image of God, it doesn't mean that you and I look like God. God took on flesh to look like us, but it doesn't mean that when we were created, we look like God. So what does it mean? Well, it means that we were created to reflect his being, his character, to reflect his attributes, to reflect his nature, to reflect who he is, to do some of the things that we can do as humans, to do some of what God does. So you think about the, the realm of creativity. You think about uh, the realm of, of exercising dominion, right? Power, authority. You, you think about the, the, even the, the idea of procreation, right? That, that life, participating in the creation of life is a part of imaging God. And so God created us to image him. And he created Adam and Eve first, right? And he set Adam and Eve in the garden. Here's the problem though. Adam and Eve as God's image bearers, did they succeed or did they fail? They failed. Along came the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He comes up to Eve, and he says, hey, Eve, by the way, uh, that's a pretty looking tree over there, isn't it? And Eve says, well, yeah, it is, but you know, I'm not supposed to to, uh, even touch it, she says, or I'll die. And Satan says, you're not going to die. God knows when you grab that fruit, you're going to be like him. Eve had a choice in that moment, obey God or obey her own fleshly desires. Enticed by Satan. She chose to obey her desires. Adam chose after her. So they failed, right? So then you have God create a people for himself, a people for his own possession. In the Old Testament, they went by the name Israel, right? And did Israel succeed in their mission to be God's image bearers or did they fail? They failed, didn't they? God set them apart, called them to be a people for his own possession. And even from the time that they're leaving Egypt, they're already failing. They're grumbling against God. They're saying, God, it was better back in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. And then God leads them out and they, they rebel against him. And now they're going to spend 40 years in the desert while everyone under the, or over the age of 20 dies off. And then finally, they're going to enter the promised land under Joshua. And then you've got this time of judges that follows where everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes and rejecting the, the, the theocracy, the God as king over them. They're rejecting that. They're saying, no God, we don't want that. Then they're saying, give us a king like the nations. God gives them Saul. Well, Saul gives way to David. David and Solomon, things are going well for Israel. Things are, are pretty good at that point in time, but they're still failing to be as image bearers. You've got David and Bathsheba. The, the, the main representative of Israel is committing adultery and murder, right? So even in Israel's heyday, they're still struggling. And then after that, you've got Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You've got the divided kingdom. The kingdom splits. And then you've got this king was bad, good, bad, good, 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 bad, 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 bad. Until finally God says, I'm I'm done. You're going into exile. Israel goes into exile, right? And so Israel failed at being God's image bearer. Well, God created you and he created me. Psalm 139 talks about that. That he knit us together while we were yet in our mother's womb. That God formed your innermost substance. And in so intimate is God's knowledge of you and his creative power over you that it says that all of the days of your life to be lived were numbered before there was even yet one of them that's passed, okay? So God created you and he created me and he created us to be his image bearers. Well, let me ask you a question and I'll ask myself and we'll all answer it together. Have we succeeded or failed at being God's image bearers? We have failed, yes. And Paul indicts that, right, in Romans, Romans chapter three. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, when we sin, we fail to image God, to be his image bearers. And because we are born with a sin nature, we are born with a broken and shattered image from the start. But you see wherein Adam and Eve failed and Israel failed and you and I failed. Here's the the good news that Paul's driving at in Colossians 1. Jesus didn't fail. He is the image of the invisible God perfectly, without fault, without failure, without sin, without defect, without anything that would detract from it. There's no mark or smudge on the image of Christ as he's imaging God. When you look at Jesus, you see God perfectly. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3, the writer says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. His nature being fully God. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact imprint of the full divine nature of God, meaning Jesus is fully God. And he images God perfectly. John 1, 18. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, this is Jesus speaking, no one has ever seen God, or John is writing this, sorry, the only God who is at the Father's hand, Jesus, Jesus has made the Father known. In the Greek there is Jesus has exegeted the Father. Jesus has explained the Father. Jesus has preached the Father to us to be able to understand him. Well, how can he do that? Because he's the perfect image. Because when we look at Jesus, we see God. See, the way that God designed you and I is that when creation looked to us, they would see God. But the fall destroyed all of that. See, the fall shattered all of that, but not so with Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 9, when you see me, you see the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. We are one and the same. There is no distinction. It is when you see Jesus, you see God. So let's think about Jesus. We talked about his power earlier. Let's talk about some of the things that we see to, to uh, to, to magnify him as, as God as well. How about his compassion, right? Matthew chapter eight. Matthew chapter eight. Again, Jesus comes up on a leper. And I go back to the lepers because again, right now, it's, it's just so tangibly applicable to us. Six foot social distancing over coronavirus, which quite honestly, for most of you in the room, would probably not impact you much if you got it. Okay, leprosy. If you touch the leper, it's, Immediately contagious, and you begin to take on this skin disease, which there is no recovering from. And you're an outcast from society, and you have to go live outside. You have to leave your family. You have to leave the temple. It was spiritually devastating for a leper. There was no communion for a leper, not communion—the bread and the the, the the grape juice that we take together. Meaning, no communion spiritually. You couldn't gather with other believers as a leper. And Jesus encounters one in Matthew chapter eight. You want to talk about compassion. Here's a man who's been a leper for who knows how long. And when Jesus heals him, Jesus could have said, be healed and go. Jesus could have prayed a prayer. He could have done 10 jumping jacks in front of the guy and been like, you're you're set, go on. But in Matthew 8, you see in the compassion of our Savior, the compassion of Jesus, he reaches out and puts his hands on this leper, a man who had probably not experienced human touch in who knows how long, and he heals him through touching him. It's a microcosm of Jesus entering into our sin in order to save us, is it not? How about his mercy? Matthew chapter 9, you've got these two blind guys, and they're calling out, Jesus, have mercy on us, save us. And Jesus goes over to them, and he could have just been annoyed, and he could have kept going, but he stops, and he finds them, and he goes up to them, and he restores their sight. Again, you see the mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus is the mercy of God. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of God. How about Zacchaeus? about Jesus's grace. Here you have Zacchaeus in uh, Jericho. As Jesus is going through the streets of Jericho and Jesus, Zacchaeus is a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he's like, dude, I've got to see Jesus. And so he runs up ahead and he finds the sycamore tree, right? And he climbs up in the sycamore tree and Jesus finds him. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down because I want to go to your house for dinner. And Jesus enters into the life in the... the, the the sinfulness of this man and, and reveals himself to Zacchaeus bathed in grace and gives Zacchaeus the offer of salvation and sees Zacchaeus restored and forgiven. And you see in the grace of Jesus the grace of God. How about the cross? You see the love of God in Jesus laying down his life for us. Greater love has none than this that a man lay down his life for another. You see the love of God and the love of Jesus on the cross. And then you see the holiness of God in the wrath that is poured out upon Jesus at the cross. The empty tomb, you see the power and the glory of Jesus. That he overcame death, something that no human being could ever do. And that he walked out of the tomb and you see the power and the glory not only of Jesus, but the power and glory also of the Father. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1 Jesus gathers his disciples and doesn't say, well, this was a swell ride. See you guys later when I come back for judgment. Jesus says, no, come here. I've got a mission for you. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus says, I want you to go tell others what you've seen because I want others to know about me so that they can be saved from hell. You see the, again, the compassion, you see the grace, you see the mercy, you see the desire that Jesus has that others would be saved. That is the desire that God has as well that others would be saved. And those others include all of us in this room here tonight. See, again, I I mentioned this earlier. You and I were created in the image of God, but we failed in that. We failed in that. Our image was shattered at the fall for good. And then all you and I have done is just to confirm the fact that that's true in our sins. And so here's why the good news is that Jesus was the perfect image. Because Paul tells us so clearly in Romans, Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin Here's what that means. There's no amount of obedience, no amount of prayer, no amount of DBR, no amount of scripture memory, no amount of preaching, no amount of podcasting, no amount of small groups, no amount of accountability, no amount of church attendance, no amount of pleading or bargaining or weeping or anything else that can restore your image of God. It's shattered completely and you cannot pick up the pieces and even begin to glue them back together. But we try so hard. And the good news is that you don't have to because Jesus is the perfect image. And here's the deal. Jesus, as the perfect image, went to the cross and he died as a shattered image so that you and I can live again, restored in the image of God, waiting for the ultimate day when we can fully reflect his glory. Remember what we read with, I believe it was 1 John, when he says, when we see him, we will be like him. In other words, we will be able to reflect the glory of God. See, Jesus died for you and took on your punishment for that shattered image. Jesus hung on the cross as though he failed even though he didn't so that you and I can live as though we didn't fail even though we did. See, that's why it's such good news that Jesus is the image of God. And so here's point number one for you tonight is this. Trust in Jesus to do what we can't. Trust in Jesus to do what we can't. I don't know when we'll get there, but eventually we'll get to Galatians chapter 3 in our Galatians series. Galatians chapter 3, though, listen to verses 10 through 14. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That is a damning sentence to us. Because what Paul just said there is he said, You can't be good enough. You can't put the pieces of your image back together. You can't, your track record, I don't care how long your track record of obedience is, it's still not going to be enough. And if we're trying to to be good enough by the law, which all of us at some point in time in our lives are, then we are under the the curse of the law, which means that we are under the, the penalty of our sin, which is death and eternal separation from the goodness of God and the presence of the wrath of God. But Paul goes on, he says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does the law shall live by it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You and I were all under the curse of the law, and Jesus became the curse for us. He did what we couldn't do. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law. Romans 8, 3 through 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul's there saying, look, if you're leaning on the law for salvation, the law can't save you. The law is weakened by the flesh. Whose flesh? Our flesh. It's not that there's a problem with the law. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with us. We fall short. We can't save ourselves by the law. So God, what he did is he sent Jesus. Now notice the language there in Romans 8. Put, it, put your eyes on the text again. Romans 8.3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Did you see that there? The image of God took on the image of man so that he might redeem us and restore us to be the image of God. Guys, this is why I started with this whole concept that Jesus is amazing. That we can't get past this. We can't get beyond this. That this is everything. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. If you're back in Colossians, just look across the page. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, the one that we couldn't pay, God paid in his son. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God did through Jesus what you and I couldn't do in and of ourselves. See, only the perfect image could do that. And so trust in Jesus to do what we can't Back to this idea, though, of Jesus is the image of God. In case we didn't get it the first time around, let me recycle through a couple of other passages that we haven't hit yet. How about John 1, 1 through 2? John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what's the next two words? Was God. So you've got the Word who's with God, so we can't say that this is just talking about the Father, this is somebody separate from the Father, but yet at the same time, the Word was God. And then in John 1.14 it says, and the word became flesh. So you've got the, the image of God coming after us. How about John 8.58? 8, John 8.58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does he say next? I am. That did not make the Jews happy. Why not? Because Jesus was saying, Look, I, I existed way before Abraham. And some get angry, and they're like, what What are you talking about? You're barely even 30 years old. How can you say that you were before Abraham? See, they miss it. What he's saying here is he's God. He's eternal. But let's talk about another story in the Bible, another scene with Jesus. Mark chapter 2, you've got a a crowded house. In fact, this is Peter's house. I got to go see it when I was there in, uh, in Israel last year, Capernaum. And in Peter's house, Jesus has created such a stir already so early in his ministry that people are packing Peter's house here mother-in-law's house. And it's so bad that the people are literally overflowing out the door, okay? Like they are, they are pouring out the door of this house, just dying to get an ear on what Jesus is saying, because it says there that Jesus was preaching. And these guys who love their friend, and their friend is a paralytic, these guys hear that Jesus has healed people before. And so they pick up their buddy, and they go to meet Jesus. And they go up to this house, and it says when they couldn't get in through him, they couldn't get near to him because of the crowd. So they're trying. They're, they've got like the dude on the stretcher, and they're kind of looking for the, the fast pass lane like at Disneyland when you're in a wheelchair, and you can just bypass the crowds. They're looking for that with Jesus, and they can't find it, and they're trying to get in, and they can't get in, and so they go, we, we got to do something else. So these guys, they climb up on the roof, and they kind of put their ear to the, the roof, and they listen for where kind of Jesus is in the, the house, and they're shuffling along. Okay, it's right here, and they dig a hole in the roof, Right? And they take their buddy on the pallet, which he must have trusted them a lot. And they lower him through the roof. And you can picture the crowd kind of like stepping back going, what in the world is going on as the dust is falling down onto people as as this is happening? And then all of a sudden they see the light and then they see this pallet being lowered down. And it's dropped down at Jesus' feet. And then it says this. Verse 5 of Mark chapter 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Which must have been the most disappointing phrase that that paralytic had ever heard in his entire life. Why? Because what did the paralytic want to hear? What he hears later, get up and walk, right? But Jesus, knowing the paralytic's real need, says, son, your sins are forgiven. And here's the problem with that, and it's the response of the crowd. The crowd begins to grumble, and the scribes, the the, the religious leaders of the Jews, they begin to grumble, and they say this. They say, what is this man doing? He's committing blasphemy. Why is he committing blasphemy? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly, right? Like, that's what you want to scream when you're reading that. You get it. He is God. That's the point. And Jesus even goes on, he says, hey, by the way, I know what you're thinking about. You're thinking that I'm committing blasphemy, but, but just so that you guys get this, watch what I'm about to do. And then he looks down at the guy and he goes, okay, now I'm going to, now I'm, I was just, i was stringing you along a little bit. Get your mat, stand up and walk and leave. Because Jesus says, it's, it's much easier for me to just tell him, hey, dude, your sins are forgiven, but I'm going to validate my message. See, Jesus is the image of God. He is God. That's what I want you to see. That's, that's what we're driving at here. And here's the thing, Guys we're back, right? This is the first time back together. And here's what I want to do. This is a, a, a fresh start for us here in this ministry in so many different ways. I mean, not only in, in, at the end of June are we going to have this, this new crop of, of freshmen that are coming up, and there's going to be a lot of them. And I hope you guys are excited about that because they need to, to, to love you guys. You guys need to love them. And, and we, want to, we want to be just the, the, the church for them as they're coming up. But just, just personally, just between us, Just some family time. I I need to confess to you guys that I think I've done you a great injustice over the last two years that I've been your pastor. Because what I've been guilty of is I've been guilty of preaching moralistic sermons to you. I've been guilty of preaching sermons to you to puff you up and to make you know more. I've been guilty of of preaching to you a, a checklist or laying burdens on you, maybe that God hasn't always laid on you, and so I need to ask your forgiveness for that because the chief thing that I've been guilty of is I've missed the point with you. The point of every single sermon is Jesus. It's Christ. Every single message should be about Jesus. Not be better, not be holier, not be cleaner, not stop this, stop that, do this, do that. That's an overflow of some of the application of a relationship with Jesus. But that's the key there, is there needs to be a relationship with Jesus. The point of every sermon is Jesus. The point of every prayer is Jesus. The point of every song is Jesus. He alone is the image of the invisible God. He alone died for us to restore us. He alone did what we couldn't do. Jesus did. This is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Maybe you're balking at that a little bit and you're going, "What, ah, pastor, I don't know about that because we need to preach the other things too and it's important to preach on sanctification. Yeah, I agree, but that's an overflow of your relationship with Jesus. Listen to what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing Among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and in my speech and my message. They were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, be it mine or your own, but in the power of God. You see, you have one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived that said, look, I'm interested in preaching to you about one thing and one thing alone, and that is Jesus. He is the point of everything. Point number two tonight is this. Live with, for, in Jesus. Live with, for, and in Jesus. Have that relationship with Christ. Paul understood there was nothing more amazing than Jesus. He understood that he was doing no good moralizing his hearers if he wasn't ensuring that they had a relationship with Jesus. Paul loved Jesus. Listen to him in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. Paul's writing this from a prison cell. Philippians 1, 15 through 26. Paul says, some indeed are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. In other words, Paul had people that were like, I'll show that apostle Paul. I'm gonna preach Jesus more than he does. I'm gonna preach Jesus better than he does. And he's gonna hate it. And Paul's like, yeah, I've heard those rumors that people are out to get me, and so they're preaching Jesus. He's like, let them! He goes on to say, the latter do it out of love, know that I'm put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me, to harm me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So Paul's like, I don't care if they're out to get me. If they're, Are they preaching Jesus? Yes, Let them. Let them be more famous than me. Let them be more popular than me. Let them get more followers than I have. As long as they are preaching Jesus and people are being saved and lives are being changed, who cares? Good on them. I'm going to rejoice in that. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance, as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. What did Paul want? He wanted Christ to be honored in his life, whether by life or death. Let me live, Christ. Kill me, Christ. Because then he says this. You know the verse. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The greatest systematic theologian ever to walk the face of the planet, the Apostle Paul, says, for me to live is Christ. Christ is Jesus. Everything is Jesus. He said, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better. But I'm going to hang out here for a little while longer, guys. That's my paraphrase, because it's more necessary for you. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Do you see how consumed with Jesus Paul was? And we think that's too soft and squishy. To hear, oh man, we should love Jesus more. Oh, don't tell, don't tell me that, man. Give me my systematic theology. Give me my five points on how am I supposed to love Jesus more? If you, have, if you don't have a relationship with him, your systematic theologies and your books by Piper and everybody else are garbage because all they're going to serve to do is damn you to hell on the last day when you missed the boat because you missed Jesus for Jesus' people. See guys, life is, is kind of like this road that we're plowing straight ahead on. And if Jesus is at the end, this road has two ditches on either side that are dangerous and perilous for us. The, the ditch on the one side is the ditch of debauchery right? It's the ditch of licentiousness. It's the ditch of, well, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I raised a hand. So I'm good with Jesus. So what does it matter how I live my life now? So I'm going to go out. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to you know, have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. I'm going to be driven by materialism. I'm going to not care about how I speak or anything else like that. That's the one ditch that, that we can drift into if we're not careful. I don't think that's really a, a ditch that we struggle with a whole lot here around this church, although some do. But then on the other side of the road, there's this other ditch, and that's the ditch of duty. You've got debauchery over here. You've got duty over here. And this is the ditch of thinking that your relationship with Jesus is about duty. It's about your checklist. It's about your podcast feed. It's about the books that you've read during this quarantine. It's about whether or not you can defend Calvinism. It's about whatever you want it to be about, but it's not about Jesus because it's about your self-righteousness. And see all I think that ditch is far more perilous to us here at our church. Not because our church is bad. Our church is not bad. Don't hear me say that at all. Our church is great. I love our church. And our church is a church that champions sound doctrine and that is a good thing. But the risk that comes with that is that your faith is not in Jesus. Your faith is in Jesus' people. Your faith is in Jesus' doctrine. Your faith is in Jesus' church. None of those are the exact image of the invisible God. See, we, we run the risk of making this concept of a relationship with Jesus little more than theology. And let me tell you, let me stress this as much as I possibly can. Theology is not enough to save you. Theology will not do any good for you on Judgment Day if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The scriptures say that the demons believe and shudder. The demons saw Jesus coming in the Gospels and they cried out, What have we to do with you, Holy One of God? The theology of the demons was way more advanced than the theology of the disciples. In fact, let me ask you, when's the last time that your theology, your knowledge of God, your study of God led you to tremble about him? There are plenty of people in hell with an amazing theology. They missed Jesus, though. For Paul, Jesus was everything. He was life, he was salvation, he was astounding i mean he radically transformed this guy that was the leading persecutor of the church to make him the leading missionary of the church paul said this in romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 paul says paul a servant of christ jesus he's, even, even his identity he's like who am i i'm a slave to jesus you want my resume go read Philippians chapter 3 and find out what i think about my resume But you want to know who I am? I am a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, a messenger for Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God, Jesus's message, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, So Paul's saying, my life is all about his son, the father's son. It's all about Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes on, he says, my call is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul got it. See, Paul understood what it is to to live with, for, and in Jesus. And guys, my fear is that we're going to turn Jesus into the mascot of Christianity. My fear is to look at Jesus like we might look at that picture of the Grand Canyon and be like, oh yeah, that's nice. And be waiting for something better. There's nothing better than Jesus. I fear preaching more moralistic sermons to him. I fear missing the point. Guys, I I fear a sterile, cold Christianity for us. Where we're just going through the motions because we don't know what else to do because we've grown up in church and our parents always brought us to church, so we should continue going to church and we're going to marry somebody who went to church and we're going to have babies that are also going to go to church and we're just going to keep doing this church thing. But we really, why am I doing this? I fear a Christianity that's all doctrine and no devotion. But most of all, what I fear for for people is I fear that Christianity that says, I know you, Jesus, that's headed for Matthew 7, where Jesus is going to look at you on that last day and say, yeah, but I never knew you. Towards the end of his life, Paul wrote one, one more letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And he's writing to Timothy, and he's trying to encourage Timothy. And he says this, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony, Timothy, About our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul was in prison and he was facing death. Church history records for us that Paul was actually executed, beheaded under the reign of Nero. That's coming. Because later in this letter, Paul knows it's coming. He says, look, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I'm being poured out as a drink offering and I know there's stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which all who love is appearing will also receive. And so Paul's going, I know that my life is almost over, Timothy. He's not saying what he said in Philippians. When he was telling the Philippians, look, I know I'm gonna be delivered even though I'd rather go to be with Jesus. I gotta stay around for you guys. He's not saying that anymore. He's like, Timothy, I know the end is near. He's in a prison under Nero's reign. Nero was horrific to Christians, humiliating them, embarrassing them, tarring them, lighting them on fire in his garden to light his his nighttime parties. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And now here's what I want you to see as we begin to wrap up. He says, but I am not ashamed, verse 12. For I know, say that next word out loud. For I know, you guys aren't there. I didn't tell you to go there. That's my fault. Here it is. (laughs) You want him to say what I have believed. You want Paul to say, Timothy, look, I'm good because I've got my doctrine in a line. I know what I have believed, so I'm good. Timothy, don't worry about me. I'm a five-pointer, all tulip. I've got it all down, Timothy, don't. Don't at me, anybody, because I'm, I'm a Calvinist through and through. Don't, don't worry about it, Timothy. I'm good. I know what I believe. That's not what Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed even if Nero dips me in tar and hangs me in a garden or cuts off my head or crucifies me upside down or saws me into, inside of a tree trunk, which are, these are all things that happened to the disciples, by the way. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. Whom? Look at, I I mean, look at, I I remember coming across this for the first time a few years ago and it just screamed at me on the page like I'm screaming at you right now. Because I I was like, what are you talking about, Paul? Because I wanted it to say, what? Because I'm good at the doctrine and the theology and I'm good at the the books and I'm good at the reading and I'm good at the the head knowledge. Paul, let me put my trust there. And Paul said, don't put your trust there. It's not about what you believe. It's about whom you believe. What you believe informs whom you believe. And your faith needs to get off the books and on to Jesus. Off your podcast preacher and on to Jesus. Off your systematic theology and on to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can save you. Again, that statement... Your goal in life is to be amazed, and Jesus is amazing. And yet, so often I domesticate Jesus. I'm like, oh, yeah, he fits in my back pocket. I take him out when he's comfortable for me, when he's convenient for me. I'll, I'll take him out a little bit more around Christmas time and Easter time, but you know what? Most of the time, like, I'm, I've, I've got a comfortable Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to be a comfortable Savior for you. Jesus wants to be your Lord. Jesus wants you in a relationship with him. John Newton once wrote a poem called, What Think Ye of Christ? Don't worry, I'm not gonna read a long poem. There's two lines. What Think Ye of Christ? And it opens like this. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. So in other words, Newton was saying the test is, do you know Jesus? Do you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Is everything in your life about Jesus? If it's not, then you've missed everything completely. And I want to encourage you this week to take some time to be amazed with Jesus. And that sounds weird, I get that, because we're not used to that. You're like, okay, but is there an accountability app for that where it's gonna like, send somebody an email when I think about Jesus? Because that'd be awesome if there was. Or can you tell me how I, I'm supposed to do that? Can, is there a book that I can read about how I need to, to be amazed with Jesus? Can you, can you give me that book? Because I'm like, that feeling that you have right now is exactly what I'm preaching against. Because you've confined your Christianity into these checklists and these boxes and these duties that you're supposed to do. And that's not a relationship. One of my favorite preachers often says this statement. He says, you know what? You need to find the things that stir your affection for Jesus and fill your life with more of that. The things that stir your affection for Jesus. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, I love that phrase. And that can be a book. It can be a book. You might have a favorite book by an author that really just lights your fire for Christ. It can be a worship song that you love to listen to and you are just like, man, this is fueling my love for Jesus as I listen to this song. It can be people that you like to hang out with that are believers that just encourage you in your walk with Christ. It can be a good cup of coffee that causes you to love Jesus because you're like, wow, Jesus, you created a world in which coffee exists and I thank you for that. And you laugh at that last one, but guys, that's where I want to get. That's where I want to get. I want to get to the place where every single thing I I engage and encounter, I'm thinking about how does this relate to Jesus. So that's what I want to challenge you to do this week, is think about those things that stir your affections for Christ. Try to bring more of that into your life. And the things that don't, let go of them. Let go of them because they're not going to do you any good in the end anyways. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for Christ. I don't mean to say that glibly. I, I truly am so thankful for Jesus and thankful for his work in my life and the life of so many of these students in this room. Lord, thank you for our salvation that we have, for your goodness, for the forgiveness of sin that Jesus did what we couldn't do. God, I just pray that we would be more aware of Christ, more mindful of him, more thankful for him, that we would truly make sure and investigate and and examine our lives to see if we're truly in a relationship with Jesus. Lord, and guard us from those two ditches that are on either side of this road of following after Christ. We want to stay exactly where you want us, consumed with Christ, even as We were encouraged in in Hebrews to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. God, we want to keep our eyes fixed, laser focused on Jesus. Help us to love him more. It's going to look different for each student in this room. But God, I want us to give intentional thought to that. What does it look like to love Jesus more and to be more in love with him and more in in an actual tangible relationship with him? and not just with his people or with his church. God, we absolutely do not want anyone on the outside looking in on that final day. We don't want anyone sitting there thinking to themselves that they're good only to to realize that they never truly had a relationship with the one who matters most in this world, and that is Jesus. So lead us into that. God, if if we have students here tonight who aren't there, may even tonight be the night where they come to faith in Jesus, where they enter into a true relationship with Jesus. God, strip us bare of all of our confidences, all of the things that we put our trust in, our self-righteousness, our pride, our knowledge, our doctrine, the things that puff up. God, show us that without Jesus, none of that is able to, to do any good for us. And so Lord, give us favor with you. Give us Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.